have your Bibles and you're open up to John chapter 12, I encourage you to stay there. And again, I want to say welcome to everybody who's here with us this morning, including all those that are online. Welcome to you. I know it is a crazy time, our first real snowfall, but in classic Newfoundland fashion, I live, Debbie and I live up in uh, Kim Mount Terrace, and I literally had to use my snowblower today um, to clear the driveway so I could get out, but I, I got pictures in Bay Bulls and other areas where there was no snow at all. And even as we drove from Kent Mount Terrace and got down by the Avalon Mall, the amount of snow decreased considerably. And so uh, I am going to try and practice what I preach and preach what I practice and stand up here and be thankful. Although at 7.30, out snow blowing in the middle of November, I was asking God why. Um, I can't lie to you. But uh, we're going to try to draw our attention to his word and see what God has for us this morning. If you're new, I've been preaching through the Gospel of John. I've titled the overarching series, The Theme of John, being Conversations with Christ. Today we're going to look at John chapter 12, verses 20 to 26. And so by way of a title, you've probably seen it online, Debbie put it on there, is Worshipful Seeking Always Gets Godly Answers. So the idea is, If you are worshipfully looking for something or someone, I contend that according to the Bible, you will always get a godly or, dare I say, God-focused answer. To maybe get us thinking about this, and I want you to see how the world thinks about this. In 1987, the famous Irish band U2, with its very famous frontman Bono, put out a song that it was not only a number one hit in 1987, but it is still one of the most popular songs that you two ever wrote. And it's the song titled, But I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And already some of you are singing it right now in your heads, right? I have climbed the highest mountains and I have run through the fields only to be with you. I have run and I have crawled. I have scaled these city walls, oh, these city walls, only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And believe it or not, I didn't realize this, but on and on Bono goes as he bemoans his search for something. Is he looking for love, for meaning, for purpose or relationship? Is he looking for peace or happiness, acceptance? Maybe he's looking for freedom. You see, on this mid-November day, for all of you here present and all of you online, let me ask you, what are you looking for and have you found it? Who are you looking for? Are you today here, present or online, Feeling these words from Bono, I've climbed, I've worked hard, I'm looking, I'm scaling, I'm running, I'm trying to find something, someone, and do you still feel like, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. See, in our passage of John chapter 12 that Matt's already read for us, you see yet another group looking for Jesus. All of Matthew's gospel has been like this, individuals, couples, groups, Crowds are all looking for something, often looking for Jesus. They want an audience with Jesus. In our passage, it's in the midst of the Passover. 
The place is jammed with people. We learned this last week. A parade, remember the triumphal entry, a parade is just finished up. Now, I don't know about you, if you've read the, the Gospel of John, but as Matt was reading it, I actually find this passage seems like a little random. It, it, it almost like stops and goes, wait, wait, John, like the flow doesn't seem to stay with this. I mean, there's been seven amazing signs. There's been five I am statements. We've had a man raised from the dead only a few days earlier who had been dead for four days. We've had a beautiful supper, a triumphal entry. The cross that Jesus will hang on is actually only six days away when you read John chapter 12. And now it's like John wants you to notice some Greeks coming to Jesus. Well, since I started preaching this gospel, I have said that John is all about these conversations, right? So whether it's individuals or groups, crowds or mobs, they're all interacting, talking, asking, some demand, some doubt, some search. It's rich and poor, male and female, the insider and the outcast, the religious and the irreligious. There's the diseased and the demon-possessed, and they all are searching, they're all looking, but the common thread of them all is every one of them is looking for a better life. Now, either they want that better life by control or luck. Either some of them are hoping for a miracle. Some of them think, I'll get this better life through politics. Either some people are using people or they're needing people. Everyone, though, in the Gospel of John is looking. Every one of them is looking. The difference is always this. Who or what are they looking for and why? Or what they think they need or what they think they want. Now again, for those of you that call Calvary home, you're going to laugh because I have said that John is very deliberate. He always wants us to know why he's writing this gospel. And I'm going to read it again. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which John says, I didn't write in this book. But I wrote these things, including John chapter 12, 20 to 26, and here's why I wrote it. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So for every one of you here, for all of you online, understand if you pick up the Gospel of, of John, if you pick up your Bible and go, I'm going to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John is telling you, I have written this so that when you get to the end, you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But not, not only does he want you to believe something, he wants you to understand there is a consequence, a benefit to believing this, that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is precisely why this passage is here. It's not random. John puts this here, this tiny passage about some unknown and nameless Greeks who are looking for Jesus. And it's not luck. It's not happenstance. John is actually being very deliberate. He wants you and I today in 2020 to see something. We're supposed to learn something. We're actually supposed to be affected by this. And so here's the big idea. Point number one, you'll see this in verses 20, 21, and 22. Here is the big idea that I want you to start with. If you're writing notes, the world seeks someone or something to worship. And from the youngest of you to the oldest, you know this. 
The entire world, it's not just you that are gathered here, it's not just you that are watching this online now live or will see this service in the days to come. Every single human being on planet earth is looking to someone or looking for something to worship. Every one of you. Even if you'll admit it or not, even if you're not even consciously aware of it or not, every one of you this past week and every one of you this coming week will look for something. Bono didn't write that song just to sell. The reason why it got popular is because it hit a chord with everybody. It resonated with them. Notice, look back at verse 19 of our passage. In John chapter 12, verse 19, we finished last week with the Pharisees looking at one another and saying, Look, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, that's a rather bizarre statement, considering they're in Jerusalem. They're primarily worried about Israel, and they want to get Jesus to be quiet. But yet they say, the whole world has gone after him. And John's like, now let me prove this to you. Because he wants you to see in verse 20 that indeed what the Pharisees were saying are true. Because here are some Greeks These are Gentiles. They speak Greek. They're searching. Now, some think that they're converts to Judaism. The reason why that they're there on the Passover is because they are God-fearing Greeks. Others think that they're simply living out their Greek culture. The Greeks of the first century is like America of the 21st century. They were the massive influencers of the world. They were the great thinkers. They They were praised for the idea that they would learn. They were always looking for something, for someone. They put a premium on learning. But John wants us to notice that what the Pharisees said in verse 19 is actually true in verse 20. The whole world is looking for someone, for something. You are, I am, we are. Now think about it. We all long, don't we? Maybe even you that I look out, and you're my church family, and you're my friends. I've had suppers and dinners, and we've hung out at my place, or I've hung out at yours, campfires, and we talk about the longings that we have. We talk about our health, and we talk about our marriages or our relationships. We talk about our parents or our in-laws. We talk about our children. We talk about the world and politics and the coronavirus and the economy, and we all long Every one of us, we long for something. We're looking for something. You might ask questions to yourself. Maybe you did it this week. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my legacy? I'm noticing that the closer I get to 50, the more that battles around in my head. What is my legacy? What am I going to be known for? How will people define me? What's my purpose? What's the point of all of this? What's the point of life? Who have I affected in my life, positively or negatively? What will I pass on to my kids or my grandkids? Will the world be a better place because I've lived it? Has my life made a difference? Does anybody know who I am? And as we are coming into the Christmas season, what do you think that one of the most famous movies of all time, It's a Wonderful Life, will be played over and over and over again. And that ranks right up with the other movie called Scrooge, right? Both are meant 
to make you and I consider the consequences of our choices and our lives. That's the burning question of it's a wonderful life. This guy is so discouraged because he wonders, has my life ever made a difference? Scrooge, we're told and shown how he lives one way and then he gets these visits from these three ghosts that show him, right? These are the consequences of your actions and all he wants by the end of it is, give me another shot. I will change the way I live. And here we are in Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 12, over 2,000 years ago, during the Passover, with all of the controversy surrounding Jesus, literally, the whole world is, hang on to this, looking for something. And I actually think we get the answer in verse 23, but hang on to that. For now, though, take a look at the role. Let's look again at Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. These Greeks come and they say, they go to Philip, notice that, and they say, we would see Jesus, and watch, Philip then goes to Andrew, and Philip and Andrew then go to Jesus. Now, these Greeks... Go to Philip. Now, I don't know about you, but the older I got in my Christian walk, the more I couldn't read any part of the Bible without asking, why is that there? Because I don't believe there's any throwaway verses in the Bible. So why do the Greeks go to Philip? Well, in fact, if you realize it, of all the 12 disciples, only Philip and Andrew have actual Greek names. And John wants us to know that they're from Bethsaida. And what you need to realize geographically is Bethsaida was the closest in proximity to the most Greek city in all of Israel. So it's very likely that Philip might have been the only one besides Andrew that not only had a Greek name, but actually spoke Greek. So these Greeks understand Philip's the guy to go to. They converse with him. They talk to him in the Greek language. Philip then goes to Andrew. So it is very likely that these God-fearing Greeks in search of a Messiah or the King of the Jews... Wait a second, does that sound familiar since we're headed into Christmas? Wasn't there another group of Gentiles looking for someone who was supposed to be the King of the Jews? I think there were some wise men from the East. Hang on to that idea as well. And so what do they do? They go to the guy with the Greek name who grew up at the most Greek place in all of Israel. And what does Philip do? He doesn't go, guys, I'm glad you came. Let me take you to Jesus. No, he goes to Andrew and he says, Andrew, there's some Greeks here and they want to talk to Jesus. And then Philip and Andrew go to Jesus with the request. Now watch the next phrase, though. Philip and and, and Andrew go and tell Jesus and notice what it says. And he says to them. Now, is that just to Philip and Andrew? Or is that what what he's going to say next? He says to the entire Greeks. Or is it for the entire audience? I mean, John knows, right? Because John's writing about this. So whatever Jesus said somehow got to John's ears. And Andrew is an interesting study. If you'll take note, every time you read about Andrew in the entire Bible, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's only mentioned three times. And every time he's bringing somebody to Jesus. In John chapter 1, he's bringing his brother Peter He goes to Peter and he says, come, we have found the Messiah. In John chapter 6, when there's a massive crowd, upward to 20,000, who are hungry and the disciples don't know what to do, and Jesus says, we're going to feed them, and they say, how? Andrew is the one who brings this young lad forward with his five loaves and his two fishes. And here, when Philip hesitates, and I really do wonder why, 
It's Andrew that takes Philip and they go to Jesus. Now, I've wondered if Philip hesitated because maybe he was a little confused. Because remember last week, back in chapter 12, verse 17 and 18, the disciples are misunderstanding all of this themselves. Because if you remember the life of Jesus as he lived it, most of the time, Jesus was telling the disciples not to go to Gentiles. In Mark chapter 10, remember when Philip and the disciples were trying to stop mothers and fathers from bringing their children to Jesus? In Mark 10, they're rebuked by Jesus and said, let them bring the children to me. When he sends them out on a first missionary journey in Matthew chapter 10, he says, go to the entire house of Israel, but don't go to the Gentiles. Remember that woman, that Syrophoenician woman that comes and asks Jesus to uh, heal her child? And Jesus says this very controversial thing. He looks at this woman and says, I'm not here to serve the dogs. I'm here for Israel. And remember how this woman, she doesn't get offended. She doesn't interpret this as being racism or or being anti-woman. She says, yes, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the table. And remember, Jesus says, oh... There's no faith like you have in all of Israel. And, she, and Christ grants her her request. So maybe Philip is just confused. Plus, if you remember, Jesus has a habit of saying, my hour is not yet come. And yet in our passage, when Jesus looks at Philip and Andrew, he says, my hour is come. And I wonder if this confused them. You remember all the way back in John chapter 2 when he turns the water into wine and Jesus looks at his mother and says, Woman, my hour is not yet come. From the point of view of the disciples, Christ seems to have made it clear that his and their priorities were, were to be the Jews when he'd sent them out. And so now, here he is, and he says, My hour has come. I don't know about you, but this week I was thinking about Philip and Andrew, and I thought, yeah, you know what? I'd be just as confused. I'd be one of those people that would want to get close to Jesus and go, okay, look, which is it? Am I supposed to go to the Jews, or am I supposed to include the Gentiles? Your hour has not come, now your hour has come. You tell us not to do this, and then you tell us to do this. Could you just tell me straight how it is, right? But look at it. You got confused disciples. You got Greeks that are seeking. A crowd has been hailing Jesus is the king that they wanted. Religious religion wanted Jesus silenced, killed, or they wanted him to join them on their agenda. Everyone again is seeking. Everyone is looking, looking, and I'm telling you, everyone in this room and online is also looking. You're tr- all trying to fit in, to belong, to be accepted to trust yourself or to trust someone. Every one of you is longing. Now again, take a second. What are you looking for this morning? Love? If I just had somebody to love me. Acceptance? I think that is the number one word of the 21st century in Western culture. Accept me. Accept me for who I am. Accept me for how I look. 
TV shows and movies and social media groups cry out, come here, watch this, because we'll accept you. Are you looking for assurance? In a world of massive anxiety and depression and discouragement, people just want assurance. What about peace? Have we ever lived in a time when people want peace more and yet we don't have it? Whether it's individual peace, like I just wish I could be at peace. Or I wish our world would be at peace. I wish my country was at peace. I wish my province had peace. What about safety in the 21st century? You know, the coronavirus for me seemed a million miles away until my best friend got it. I've talked with Herb every day over the last few days. In fact, Herb sent me a recorded message yesterday and I played it for Debbie. And it was heartbreaking and hard for me to listen to him labor to breathe. He had to go to the hospital last night with Janet because she's now been tested positive and confirmed with it. And now they're waiting to find out if their two kids have it. But even as Herb is just trying to tell me that they're okay, you can hear him struggle to breathe, to get the air, to get the words out. Has there ever been a time when we're looking for safety? Looking for answers? Looking for meaning? But you see, in John chapter 12, here's the rub. The question is, where are you looking or to whom are you looking? Are you looking to a person? Like my wife needs to give me this or my husband needs to give me this or my kids need to give me this. Are you looking for an idea? I will cling to this. I love this idea, this idea of the view of life. Are you looking to a group? Quite frankly, as much as I love church and I want people to come to church, if you are looking to the church to give you your value, you've even got church wrong. Some people are looking in a job. Some are looking for acceptance and answers in their marriage, in their kids. Some of you are looking for it at the gym. It's all about how you're going to look and how you feel. Some are looking to money. Some of you are looking to social media or to your culture. Some of you are looking to your government. Some of you are looking to a school or a career. Some of you are looking for an experience or a feeling. Some are trying to run away and others are trying to hide. But every one of us, again, is looking to or for something or someone. Well, I can tell you this. According to John chapter 12, we already know that the crowd was wrong. We already know that the disciples didn't understand, and we already know that the religious were rejecting. Now, here are some Greeks, and I promise you, no one was expecting what Jesus was about to say next. Nobody thought. Andrew didn't, Philip didn't. When they go and they bring Jesus and say, listen, there are some Greeks want to see you. <laughs> I love it. Maybe they expected, maybe Philip and Andrew thought, okay, well, we'll go to Jesus and he'll say, hey, listen, guys, I'm going to go to the cross in a few days. Like, I'm not receiving Gentiles today. You know, Bonnie is trying to help me with my schedule and she comes to me and says, well, I booked this in. Well, you know, sometimes Bonnie, well, Steve will say, I'm not seeing people today, right? Maybe that's what they thought. Or maybe they thought, oh, we'll, we'll 
score some brownie points, and they'll be like, way to go, Philip and Andrew. And maybe Philip and Andrew thought, we'll finally get one up on James and John and Peter. We'll finally be a part of the inner circle. And Jesus doesn't say anything like this. He seems to have looked upon the coming of the Greeks as a sign that actually the climax of his mission had arrived. And he says to them, look at it in verse 20 and 21. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What? What? That is not how I believe they thought he was going to respond. How many times have you done that? You've gone to Jesus with something and, and you're praying to him or you go to the Bible and you say, Lord, I need an answer from you. And the Lord says, okay, here's my answer. And you're like, well, that's not what I was looking for. And we're right back to Bono. This would have shocked and stopped everybody. And I'm telling you, when Jesus says, the hour has come that the Son of Man is to be glorified, everybody has now, is now listening. And I don't know about you, but I, I picture them all. They're leaning in. They're holding their breath. What will Jesus say now? And this is what he does. Because if you're taking notes, number two, Jesus explains why he is worthy of worship. See, the whole world is looking for someone or something to worship. And now Jesus says, I'm the one worthy. I'm the one worthy. Look at verses 23 and 24. He basically looks at these Greeks, the disciples, the crowd, the Pharisees, the priests, and says, now you know. Do you want to know why I'm here? Do you want to know what you're looking for? Here's what it is. I am going to die for you. I want you to know that I have lived for you. I have fulfilled the law's requirements for you. By the way, you don't even know it. I have loved you, and I'm offering to heal you. I'm going to show you my power and my purpose and my plan. I have been the perfect embodiment of what it means to follow and listen and trust Jesus. In fact, for you to live, I have to die. My time has come. You see, with these Greeks... <laughs> it's funny, when Jesus was born, he was found by Gentiles from the east. Here at his death, he sought out by Gentiles from the west. But Jesus has come for all people. He's lived and will die for anyone who will come to him. And this sentence was primarily meant to teach the wandering Greeks the true nature of Messiah's kingdom. If they were like the wise men from the east coming looking for a king, like the kings of this world, they were going to be greatly mistaken. Jesus would have them know that he, as king, would carry a cross, not a wear a crown. He didn't come to live a life of honor and ease and magnificence, but to die a shameful and dishonored death. The kingdom he came to set up was to begin with a crucifixion, not with a coronation. His glory is to take and its rise was not from victories won by the sword. He didn't come to accumulate treasures of gold and silver, but from the death of its king. You see, it was funny because the wise men in Matthew chapter 2 that we will sing about brought gifts looking to worship the king of the Jews. And maybe the Greeks were looking for that as well. So Jesus wants them and the disciples, he wants you and I to know Christ's death was be the, is the source of spiritual life. From his cross and his suffering, it was to spring up this mighty harvest that would benefit all mankind. His death was going to be like a grain of seed. And then when it was done, the root of blessing and mercies to countless millions of immortal souls. 
So rightly what John is saying, the great principle of the gospel is once more exhibited, exhibited, that Christ, are you ready for this word? His vicarious death. It wasn't his life. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't even his teaching. It was his death was to bring forth the praise of God and provide redemption for a lost world. Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist pastor in the 1800s, said it like this. Man, mankind, chooses those who would be most helpful to him. God chooses those to whom he can be the most helpful. We select those who give us the best return. God frequently selects those who need him the most. God doesn't always answer our why, does he? But here he actually does. Here he says what you're looking for and why you're looking for it. And the answer to both is me. Jesus says, I'm who you're looking for. And this will bring me glory. You see, Jesus doesn't get glory by being exclusive. Have you ever noticed that in the Bible? It's quite the opposite. Jesus is actually glorified because God will reward Jesus' suffering and His obedience and His love and His mercy and His grace. God will indeed justify sinners because Jesus can truly offer this salvation to all people. Do you remember what I read last week out of Revelation 5? You, Jesus, are worthy. Why? To take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And your blood was shed and purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Guess what? That's everybody in this room. There's not one of you in this room that Jesus didn't die for. There's not one of you watching online that Jesus didn't live and die for. And this is why Jesus says what he does. But let me maybe stop preaching for a minute. and Let me ask you, do you get this? Have you personalized this? Is this how you live your life in 2020? Have you seen that it was only by dying that Jesus could save you? So God could call you son or daughter? I mean, what do these verses that Matt read for us and that we're looking at even mean? Jesus says, as a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. Jesus is talking about himself. He's teaching us that unless he died, there wouldn't be any salvation. There's no way that poor sinners like you and I could ever find hope. We would literally be like Bono, crawling, climbing, running, seeking, and still not finding what we're looking for. But because he did die... That song can be discarded because I can say, I was once crawling, I was once climbing, I was once striving, I was once doing that, and then Jesus showed me that he was the one I was looking for. Jesus comes to me. And I remind us all again that we are heading into the Christmas season, but truly, you realize Jesus was born to die. That's why he came. 
But the example of Jesus wasn't enough. His life alone wasn't enough. His mercy and his teaching, no, he had to die for our sin. More than that, he had to die for our sinfulness. He had to, he had to pay for it all. You remember one of the other movies I told you that I liked before, since I've been here, is that movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage in it, where the idea is there's this massive treasure hid away, and, and you've got to be a Freemason to know about this, apparently. But the whole movie, he goes looking for this vast treasure, and they go through all the ups and downs. They've got to steal the Declaration of Independence, because on the back of it, there's a code to give you the coordinates for it. And the whole movie is him looking for it, and they finally find the treasure. But the whole time, he's been avoiding bad guys and trying not to get caught by the FBI, because he's wanted, because he stole the Declaration of Independence. So finally they find it. By the way, this massive treasure was in the basement of a church in New York City. Who knew? And, and so they find this treasure. It's unbelievable treasure. And he goes up, and the FBI are waiting for him. And there's this great scene with him and this FBI agent, and they're on the altar of this church. And so he finally says, yeah, I found the treasure. And he's all weird. And he goes, no, no, I've got some demands. And he says, I want my father's name cleared, and I want the Gates family to get all the credit, and I want my friend here uh, to be totally cleared. And then he says it, and he goes, and I really don't want to go to jail. And do you remember what the FBI, he goes, oh, Ben, someone always has to go to jail. Someone always has to pay. You see, this is what Jesus is saying. We are sinners. We're sinful. And someone has to pay. And that's why the hymn writer said, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left its crimson stain. But listen now, he, Jesus, washed it white as snow. You see, Jesus says to the Greeks, to Philip, to Andrew, the rest of the disciples, the crowd, the religious, which, by the way, that group encompasses everybody in this room and online. Every one of us needs to know we're all guilty. But Jesus says, my hour has come and I'm going to be glorified now. How? Because I'm going to go die and I'm going to pay for your sin. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to convince God to accept you. You don't have to convince me to love you. You don't have to live your life with the burden of, am I accepted? Can I have assurance? Can I know peace? Jesus says, I'm going to pay for all of it. And it's all yours to have. Why should we trust Him? Because His Word is forever. His plans are set. His faithfulness is forever. His justice is perfect. His love is unfailing. And that's why in verses 25 to 26, my final point, Jesus explains now what it means to worship Him and the results. So this passage breaks down, 20, 21, 22. Everybody's looking for something. 23 and 24, Jesus says, I'm the one who's worthy. Worship me. Verse 25 and 26, this is what it looks like to worship me. And here's what this results in. You see, the passage begins with an inquiry, and now Jesus gives the answer. The significance of this passage for us lies in the fact that when we will see Jesus is when we properly understand the answer. Jesus told the Greeks, the disciples, the crowd, and John is telling you and lie. If you want to see Jesus, are you ready for this? Trust Him. Follow Him. Doesn't it make sense? Many of you in this room know my story with Debbie. Debbie and I have known each other since we were five years old. I threw rocks at her. 
Yeah, still works. Well, maybe not today, actually. It doesn't work if I throw rocks at her. But you know what? 45 years later, I still only know Debbie as I spend time with her and I ask her questions and I listen to her. In fact, the greatest source of disagreements in our marriage from the time we started dating at 16 years of age until now when we're in our 40s, all right, is whenever I look at Debbie and I tell her what she's thinking. Without asking her what she's thinking, I tell her what she's thinking. I can assure you that always gets met with the same response and look. Oh, you know what I'm thinking. Men take note. Women don't like that. Don't tell the significant other of your life what they're thinking. It's much better if you go, what are you thinking? All right? You see, Jesus is going to unpack now what it means to see him. I wonder if Jim Elliot was moved by this verse. Verse 25, look at it. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Years later, centuries later, millennia later, Jim Elliot would say, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, Jesus is saying, if you want to see me, the Greeks came and said, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, you want to see me? Trust me. Follow me. I'm going to die for you. That's how you get your life. Now, I know most of you would hear, would say, okay, of course, I get it. But stop and think about what Jesus is saying. Because this is the opposite of how we think and act, right? We try to preserve our lives. We try to protect them. We're taught to value life. We just observed Remembrance Day last week to honor those who fought and who fight to protect our way of life. We're fighting the coronavirus in order to protect life. But here Jesus is saying, to know me, to come to me, you have to be willing to give up your life. Is Jesus lying again? Is he contradicting himself again? You see, Jesus is not saying that we should hate life itself. Nor that we should not love the good things that God has placed in this world. Follow me now. Jesus' meaning is made clear when you know the two different Greek words. And the Greeks would have gotten this. In the first clause when he says, you're not to love your life, he uses the Greek word psyche, where we get our word for psychology. Jesus means that we are to reject the worldly way of thinking and feeling. We're to reject the life of ego. It's my way. It's all about me. I'm the center of my universe. And when Jesus speaks of gaining eternal life, he uses a different word, which is the word zoe. Where when when you join it to the word eternal, it means the divine life that's in us. So Jesus is saying, turn away from the worldly ego to the ladder of divine life. J.M. Boyce puts it like this. He goes, there's a children's t-shirt that says, to know me is to love me. That, That, as it seems to me, is supremely true of Jesus. To see him as the crucified Savior is to truly know him, and to know him is to love him fervently. God grant that it may be true of many and those that those who know him may also glorify him by their lives in accordance with his word and in the power of his spirit. And Jesus goes a step further because he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So don't miss this. He's clearing up any misunderstanding. He's telling the Greeks, the disciples, the crowd, you and I, 
If you say, I'm a Christian, I know Jesus, I follow him, I trust him, then what does that mean? Then that means you can die to self because Jesus already has. Christians can fight their sin because Jesus has already defeated sin. Christians follow Jesus because Jesus leads us to God. Christians follow Jesus because Jesus loves and approves of us. Notice how he ends the passage in verse 26. I love this because he never ends on a negative. He always ends on a positive. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now catch this, all right? Here in chapter 12, he says, And where I am, there my servant will be also. In the very next two chapters... When he gets alone with the disciples, he's going to say this to them. By the way, when I go to die for you, I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I'm going to call you friends. This is the power of the cross. You move from being a servant to a friend. You move from being a friend to a joint heir with Christ. You move from being that to being a son or daughter of God. You move from that to being a saint. I love it. I did the funeral for a man in PEI who rejected Jesus almost all of his life. And in the latter part of his life, he came to Christ. His name was George Sims. His mom, who's 104 years old, is still living in Prince Edward Island. I remember when I preached this sermon, I said, George was a sinner who met a Savior and became a saint. And this is what Jesus is saying to the Greeks and to you and I. It doesn't matter who you are. We're all sinners. But if you will come to the Savior, He'll make you a saint. Don't miss this. When you trust Jesus, when we follow Jesus, doesn't it make sense that we will be where Jesus is? Now, Calvary Baptists, listen. When Jesus Christ returns, there will not be any fraud allegations, no media scrutiny, no political unrest. Jesus lived perfectly. He's displayed the power of God, the love of God, the perfection of the law is found only in Him. And now His hour has come. So you and I can be assured He's going to subdue our enemies. He will judge the living and the dead. He will set up His kingdom. He will reign over the cosmos. And He is going to establish peace and justice. And can I get an amen for that? There you go. By the way, though, don't tell me you're in Christ if you hate the world that he died for. We must recapture the heart of Jesus and his mission. The reason why Mile One Mission exists is because of this passage. The reason Match Over and Kill Bride, the reason we want to send people all around this city, all the way to, up in Labrador, to Happy Valley Goose Bay in Lab City. So what are you to take for, from this? What's your takeaway as you go home? Well, let me finish with this. I've preached from all kinds of so-called pulpits in my life. 25 years as a pastor, I've preached behind wooden pulpits and metal ones, grand ones, and quite embarrassing ones. But twice, I've preached from pulpits where once I preached in a pulpit similar to this one that had a big front and a big uprising that you couldn't see and taped on the back of that uprising that you couldn't see were the words, Sir, we would see Jesus. So that anybody who preached had to stare at that saying the whole time they preached. The second time I preached in an auditorium where on the back, on a plaque about the same size as that television that's back there, was inscribed those words from John 12, we would see Jesus. 
So if everyone is looking for something or someone, the question must be asked of us as Christians, who are we pointing people to? Parents, are you showing your kids Jesus or simply giving them religion? Husbands and wives, are you showing and bringing your spouse to Jesus or are you simply trying to make them worship you? Do what you want. Live the way you think is best. Church, are we showing our families and our friends and our neighbors Jesus, bringing them to Jesus, or are we simply bringing them to our denomination, our way of thinking, to our standards, our worldview, our politics, our way of life? You see, if you, if I, if we here at Calvary Baptist Church, if we wish people to see Christ glorified, then we've got to help others find Jesus. We've got to lead them to Jesus These Greeks went to Philip, who took them to Andrew, who took them to Jesus. But Jesus speaks to them and to the disciples, and look at what he says. I'm going to live and die for you, but you've got to trust and follow me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. There's another old hymn. It's called Look and Live. The verses go like this. I have a message from the Lord. Hallelujah. This message unto you I'll give. Tis recorded in his word. Oh, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. Life is offered unto you, hallelujah. Eternal life thy soul shall have. If you'll only look to Him, hallelujah, look to Jesus who alone can save. Look and live, my brothers, look and live. Look to Jesus now and live. Tis recorded in His Word, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. This song displays the hope that Jesus gives to us. John Stott explains it so well. Christian hope is quite different from secular optimism. Hope in the, by the Christian is confidence in God kindled by the promise of God. So, will you be honest this morning? Are you like Bono? Looking, but still haven't found what you're looking for? Or will you be like this person? A woman in John chapter 4 who said, I have found the Christ. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. You know who said that? A five-time divorced, living in sin with a sixth man, Samaritan woman, who met Jesus and felt the gaze of love. And she was changed by his love and his truth. And what was the result? She trusted him. She followed him. She was changed by him. Oh, and by the way, she worshipped him. The Greeks came seeking Jesus. Are you? Jesus gave his life for you. And then gently says, trust me with your life. And the passage ends. And the lesson does as well. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I pray for my friends, my family, my loved ones, for guests and visitors both here in this room and online. Lord, so often in my life I'm unsure. I doubt myself. I struggle like everybody else. But Lord, there's of this I am sure that we are all looking for someone or something. And the answer is always and only Jesus 
So, Lord, whether there's somebody here in this room, young or old, male or female, whatever their life, whatever their struggle, I pray that they would seek you and know what it means to find you. Lord, if someone here and they don't know you, they know about you, they're looking, but they, I pray that they would just feel comfortable and confident to cry out to you and say, Lord, I need you. I want to do what that song says. I want to look and live. And Lord, I pray for anybody in this room and online that would say, I'm a Christian. I know Jesus. Are we living this out? Are we showing people Christ? Are we bring people, bringing people like Philip and Andrew to Jesus? Oh God, our church is a young church with a lot of young families. And Lord, so often we can think that it's got to be a program that saves our kids or it's going to be the legacy of our Christianity. Lord, that you don't have grandchildren. You only have children. So I pray that we will actively trust you with the lives of our kids. For every single person here, I pray that they would realize Jesus is more valuable than a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a degree or even the acceptance of the world. That if they would turn to Jesus, they will actually find and discover how to put all those things in its right perspective. Lord, I pray that we will understand there is a God-shaped void in every human heart that only God can fill. And so, Lord, let us lean on you to fill it. In Christ's name, amen.